Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison, and we are excited to be joined again by Stephen Eich, professor, assistant professor of government at Georgetown University and the author of The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes. And today we're going to continue our series and talk about the man, the myth, the legend, the one who inspired us all, the one reason we're here, and that is Karl Marx. So Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back. Steven, I think uh, you've been, we've done, this is the third one now, and I think it's time for us to actually take a little bit of a detour and talk about currency in terms of how we here at American Prestige can get more of it. Uh, so if you have some thoughts on that, I would really appreciate it. Well, Stephen uh, your, your off mic recommended the Prestige coin, which is a Bitcoin <laughs> that will be solely linked to American Prestige. I think the Miami coin has a value of like 0.0000001 to the dollar. I think well, we, we can, can beat, beat that. that. Yeah, yeah, we can beat that. We could get uh, a Google of zeros on there and really get going. <laughs> Uh, so, Stephen, uh, last time, I think we basically got to the doorstep of Marx, and I think a lot of people listening uh, to us will be relatively familiar with Marx's economic theory and economic history. But I think unlike all of the other thinkers that we had discussed today, what, what we would today call economics um, is really at the center of Marx's thought. So so before we even get into his discussion of currency, maybe you could just give a, a, a brief, you know, explanation of what people will need to understand about Marxist thinking before we even get into what he says about currency. Maybe run through a little bit the base superstructure or whatever you think is necessary for them to appreciate what Marx is doing when he talks about money. Yeah, so first we just uh, situate Marx in, in the conversation that we've been having so far. You know, some of the thinkers we've been talking about so far are mainly known as philosophers, people who are not primarily known as economists or economic thinkers. And for them, we you know we had a conversation about how money actually turns out to be a crucial uh, concept in their, in their political thought. And they actually have something to say on things that we might consider economic theory or monetary theory. For Marx and to some extent for Keynes, you know, the opposite is the case. You know, they're known as, you know, towering economic thinkers. And so the, the task is how do you get into the economic thought, but at the same time capture the way in which they were embedded in broader conversations about what the relationship between economics and politics is. And so um, in, instead of just kind of launching in with, you know, formal analyses of the value form and, you know, all the kind of theoretical baggage that one has to um, accept in order to get into Marx, I actually think the, the most straightforward um, entry point into Marx's thought for me is to appreciate the way in which he's engaged in a critical conversation slash pushback against a number of competing socialist reformers, in particular in France. Right. So this is a moment in which figures like Proudhon are turning from radical socialist politics towards economics, arguing that actually economics is the material that has to be understood, that has to be reshaped if you're a good socialist. And, you know, Marx is initially uh, very excited about this project. That's why he essentially shifts from philosophy, law, you know, from his kind of Hegelian background in, um, you know, post-Kantian German philosophy 
to studying the great works of economic thought uh, as he moves to Paris. And so he's, he's on board with that initial move. And then very quickly, as he begins to read uh, Smith, Mill, Ricardo, he begins to develop a critique of the Proudhon project. And I think everything that follows next 20, 30 years are best understood at Marx, as Marx trying to carve out a space for his specific form of, you know, the, the communist project as a critique of competing socialist critiques. So that's the political theory of Marx. I mean, in, in uh, sorry, the, the political economic approach that Marx takes. Do we think, uh, do you think we need to understand anything about his relationship to Hegel to appreciate what he says about currency? Or could we essentially black box that and leave it off to the side? As a, that's a tricky question, uh, hotly debated, um, you know, among, among readers of Marx. No, I think one can actually get quite, quite far without getting sucked into Hegel's logic. At some point, you probably, you probably have to turn to Hegel's logic, but, but you can, I think you can get remarkably far by actually reconstructing first the history of economic thought that Marx is engaged with, and then the kind of contemporary socialist proposals against which he's pushing back. Um, Hegel is in the background, but, but it's the background. Okay, good. So we don't need to go through the whole sort of idea and, and all of those good things. That those the, will be the next four sessions. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll do the next four sessions on Marx's relationship. Hegel's to logic. Okay, so now that we, we've got the sort of basic contours of Marx's project, why don't we, we, we just dive into it and dive into the history? W- what is the context that Marx is reacting to? Why is money of concern to him? And how does he approach the question of currency and the question of money? And how does it relate to his larger project about dialectically transcending capitalism and creating some form of communist society. Yeah, so one of the things that I didn't expect when I started researching the chapter, but that now for me is absolutely crucial, is to appreciate the way in which money is actually a kind of through line for Marxist thought from the very first moment in which he turns towards economics all the way towards the end, the kind of um, unfinished manuscripts um, from, from the last decades of his life. And explicitly what's going on here is that you see Marx getting very excited the moment these economic texts turn to the discussion of money, right? Some of the most famous passages in the Paris manuscripts are precisely on the power of money. In his early economic notes on Mill, Senior, you know, it's it's the moment in which money is discussed that Marx kind of gets really excited. And that can be easily missed when you look at, you know, volume one of Capital, in which money has a certain role, but then it's kind of superseded by capital and it's kind of, you know, one, one step and under, understand the formal qualities of capital itself. But actually, I think that's... Can we we just pause on that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Because what is capital and why is it not just money? I think Marx precisely develops the concept of capital, among other reasons, in order to show why it's not just simply a question of monetary reform. Right. So, so if the intellectual context, um, is, you know, this rich discussions of money and the history of economic and political thought, the contemporary reference point is, you know, socialist proposals for credit reform. So why don't we just change the monetary system? And that reform alone will actually end to, you know, end uh, exploitation, reform economic relations in a way that, you know, breaks with the past and ushers in some radical socialist future. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of buzz about credit reform, you know, republicanizing money, ending the gold standard, introducing a people's central bank. And, and Marx, you know, to put it very crudely and very uh, reductionist, but, but I think accurately, Marx developed a critique 
of that position. And the concept of capital is one tool he develops in order to illustrate that this is not just simply a question of monetary reform, that money is not just simply this kind of malleable political institution that we can change at will, but instead that the system we're living under is a system that's defined by capital. And you need to understand the relationship between money and capital, the role that money plays as capital in order to appreciate the limits that exist for monetary reform, or at least monetary reform on its own. This might be um, – a it, it is a basic question, but when Marx says capital, what is he referring to? So I think he's he's factory, to, you know, like this is what I would tell my students. Well, not, yeah, but I think that's that's in some way um, where the economic, uh, you know, foundational text of political economy start that with the distinction between labor and capital. And Marx radically reworks this. Um, capital isn't just the kind of fixed stock of assets. It isn't just the factory, but but capital is the the magical thing that accumulates in the system that he refers to. Uh, you know, following others as capitalism. So, so, so capital is much more than simply the factory. Um, capital is the thing that feeds itself on surplus value. So it's, it's closely related to the concept of value. It's the thing that accumulates in the economic system Marx wants to describe. Sure. And I think that's how he situates it theoretically. But just for, for listeners who want to have like, um, something to hang on to, what are some things in society that Marx would say? represent capital, our capital, in, in some sense. So yeah, this is the historian versus the political theorist. <laughs> no, but I think this is, this is actually not just a, um, you know, an interesting question, but it's a question that goes to the very heart of what Marx is doing, because capital is a kind of very mystical thing. Like one of the things that makes it so interesting for Marx is that it, its appearance is deceptive. That it doesn't come in this kind of solid form. You know, capital isn't just simply the kind of the gold coin or the kind of the solid new machine. Um, it's, it's all of that and much more, much more. Um, in, instead, what defines capital, I would say, is that it, it has this quality of embodying, uh, circulating and accumulating value. Right. And that can take on in a really, truly magical way, all kinds of shapes. Capital is a shapeshifter. Um, and not just material where we get like form. cultural capital and social capital and all of these derivations of the theory. Yeah, and it's linked to labor as well, right? It's not just the kind of physical machinery, but but capital, crucially for Marx's argument, has a really interesting relationship to labor, right? At some point, he describes it as kind of congealed labor power, like in the German here is Galerte, so it's a kind of just like crushed bodies turned into weird, disgusting objects that then are being, you know, accumulated. Um, so, so that question, as naive and simple as it as it might seem, actually really goes to the heart of what Marx is trying to do in in Capital. Great. So, why don't we situate now Marx within the historical context of the middle of the nineteenth century, the eighteen forty eight revolutions, things along those lines, and how his thought develops in dialogue with the actual political events uh, that he was living through? Because I think that's absolutely crucial to understanding Marx. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is, you know, every single sentence that we're going to discuss today is hotly contested. You know, they're they're kind of clashing schools, and um, and I, I I don't pretend to neutrality here, and I'm sure I'm sure people will disagree at certain points, but but I think um, you know it's it's crucial to understand a the excitement of '48 and b the disappointment of '48. Um, right, that kind of rhythm, the way in which Marx thought he had seen in the late 1840s, a kind of economic and then political crisis taking shape. In a way, Rick, you really had to go back to at least 1830, maybe even the French Revolution, um, to kind of get any anything similar. 
And Marx and Engels, you know, were not just living through this, but actively participating in it. This is the time in which, you know, Marx is essentially a political refugee moving between Paris, Belgium, and then eventually England. He's a, he's a journalist on the run. He's a pamphleteer who most famously writes, obviously, the Communist Manifesto. Um, and, and so he's, the, he's an active participant, or at least a very close engaged observer in these events. And then nothing much happened. And certainly in Germany, the disappointment is crushing. Um, and kind even of like elsewhere. today in <laughs> Yeah, like there, that's that, and that's where the real kind of theoretical work starts. Right. Um, not with the success, but with the disappointment. You know, why did things not work out in the way in which we hoped they would work out? Um, and, you know, Marx doesn't, um, you know, doesn't flee into cynicism. He doesn't remove himself from the situation. But I think it is for him a real moment of theoretical challenge where he, unlike, you know, maybe again, other uh, French socialists, um, sees this as a moment in which greater theoretical work is needed. And I think, you know, he, t he takes his time for this, um, partially for personal reasons. This is, you know, in the wake of 48 that he moves to England and kind of rebuilds his life with his young family, you know, as a uh, kind of hustling journalist um, and complaining about not having any, any time during the day to do his theoretical work because he has to write these stupid articles for, for American newspapers. Um, it's basically a proto blog. Marx is producing an enormous amount of content, like that other great German, Martin Luther. Uh, it's actually really interesting. He produces- But he so also has a great talent of basically giving the most boring pieces to Engels. So he's like, you know, can you, can you please write this? You know, this is, it's, it's due tomorrow. Make it dashing, make it fun. But I'm, I'm off to do real work in the British Library. But, but he takes his time. So he takes the 1850s, much of the 1860s, to do, you know, what do you consider scientific, scholarly work um, in the evening hours on what he refers to as a scholarly diet of tobacco and lemonade into the early morning hours. Um, and he thinks this is a crucial political project, but it's a political project that's kind of at one remove, that requires deep theoretical work, um, requires a reckoning with economics. And there's, there's some Hegel in the background here of, you know, why do you need to do this kind of deep, formal, conceptual work for a political project? Um, but that's, that's what he does. Um, and so he spends, um, he spends the next uh, decade or two, um, you know, doing this. Um, and only, I think, like a decade into this, does he kind of return to, you know, more explicit political activity. Not really only at the end of the 1850s does he uh, begin to glimpse a need for himself to kind of step into political organizing. That's when he begins to give speeches again, addressing workers directly. But it's after an almost decade-long hiatus of, uh, you know, working through some of the issues that had preoccupied him. Great. So let's get into money. Marx and money, go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just exactly where, where I just left off. I think what's, what, what's in the background of the this change in the late 1850s early 1860s that gets marx really excited again is he thinks he has detected the contours of the next kind of big crisis the next Wait, derek big actually economic... had a question derek, derek do you mind yeah i think it's directly related derek do you want to ask your question well i i i was just hoping maybe you could give us a little bit of background on the 1857 panic which you start the really you know start the chapter talking about kind of the run-up to that panic and seems to have been um, part of this mix, as you say, that, that sort of drew Marx back into um, more overtly political work. Uh, maybe just to give some context for what Absolutely. was going on, uh, I think that that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the many theoretical insights that Marx builds up and really commits to 
in that first decade in London exile is the idea that the next political crisis, the next political revolution will not just be accompanied by preceded by an even more devastating economic crisis and that that economic crisis will likely have a monetary dimension. So from 1855, 56 onwards, Marx and Engels are carefully watching, you know, anything that happens in the global credit markets, anything that happens on the stock market, not because they're invested in it, although Engels' family is, in fact, but because they think this is the, this is the, the sign. You know, these are the kind of clouds you have to study if you want to know where the next political revolution will emerge. And there's a hilarious kind of, you know, series of kind of false predictions of Marx and Engels time and again, getting very excited that the crisis is upon them and then nothing happens until eventually it does happen. And the, the context for that is, um, I think, uh, really crucial for understanding the theoretical work that capital is doing because it's a global crisis. Like, unlike really any of the previous crises, the credit crisis that emerges in 1857 and then carries over into 1858 is a crisis that begins in these new transatlantic markets for credit, whereby new French banks that essentially operate like kind of shadow banks or hedge funds, um, you know, are financing railroads in the U.S. West, um, where British financiers are extending loans, um, you know, all, all across the world. Um, you know, a, a world of credit that's not too dissimilar from ours. Um, and it's in that world that, you know, seemingly arbitrary uh, political decisions, the loss of a steamship full of gold, you know, a series of bad news for a bank can have cascading effects um, to the extent that you suddenly have this entire global credit system um, at the edge of at the edge of default. And at 57, 58 is one of these instances, like a really curious mixture of the Dred Scott decision in the US, which has an impact on the value of land on which, um, you know, basically companies are speculating for potential railroad contracts you know, basically merges with the unfortunate loss of a steamship, you know, loaded full with uh, gold from California that sinks off the coast of North Carolina, plus a bunch of, you know, rumors that turns out the ship isn't fully insured. There's a bank that goes down in Ohio, and suddenly you have a perfect storm of, you know, a huge bank run in the US, and then very quickly after that, you know, credit crises all across Europe. Now that we have the, the the literal historical context here, what is Marx saying about money? What do we need to know about Marx's theory of currency, and how does it relate to all the other people we talked about in the earlier episodes of the series? Yeah. So, as I already mentioned, Marx really begins his economic training with following Proudhon into the classics of the history of economic thought. And from the beginning, it's a critical engagement with Proudhon, right? Marx's first published book is a critique of Proudhon. And, you know, you can trace that through, um, in particular on the monetary dimension over the next, next two decades. Interestingly, the sources change, the tools that Marx deploys change. So early on, he's essentially, you know, mobilizing the English economist Ricardo on his side in order to criticize Proudhon. Later, he realizes that's, that's the wrong way to go about it. And he turns to more exciting contemporary thinkers associated with what's called the banking school in England. But to kind of the punchline actually doesn't change that much. But what you see developing is a critique, a critique of directed against Proudhon, but to some extent also an auto critique. You know, Marx in the 1840s is still himself flirting with some of you know, not necessarily the full transformational potential for uh, credit reform, but at least, you know, the need for a new central bank, the way in which investment has to be guided. 
that all comes under critical scrutiny as he develops his you know, concept of capital. And so in order to place it in conversation with the previous thinkers, Marx is beginning to suspect that you have things backwards if you're trying to change the monetary system without trying to change underlying economic relations. And he has a whole series of kind of metaphors and puns for this, mostly revolving around what happens, you know, when you try to preserve Catholicism while getting rid of the Pope or get rid of the Pope but pretend to have not touched Catholicism. But the ultimate point of it is always that Houdon and those others who are interested in credit reform are essentially not talking enough about the economic structures of production. That as long as you only touch the monetary system, but refuse to actually touch the, the wage system, touch the economic structures of capitalism, you are you know, treating something that is epiphenomenal as substantive. And so that will lead to you know, political disappointment, but also to all kinds of perversities. Right? So he's looking at the, these French newfangled um, shadow banks as in some way what happens when you let followers of Coudon or Fourier do their monetary experiments. You get monetary innovation, but tied to toxic politics and an economic system that hasn't been changed. And to Marx's eyes, that's not emancipation. You know, that actually makes things worse. And so he wants to um, take our attention away from pure credit reform. Um, you know, away from these debates about whether we should just uh, introduce labor chips like labor money and, uh, you know, all these kind of, you know, it's, it's a golden age, uh, if you excuse the pun, of criticizing the gold standard by introducing new forms of labor money. And Marx thinks it's a total distraction, right? Instead, we should have a conversation about the kind of fundamental structures of production. Like, what is the system called capitalism? And what is capital? So then what is the relationship between those incredibly theoretical discussions and actual money in the world? I mean, I could see that that debate, but Marx is someone who lives in this ex- liminal space because the theoretical work, as, as I think, you know, from my understanding of Marx, is really all in the service of actual political transformation. So what is he talking about here? And, and I think it might be important because this is such a complex subject to sort of relate him to, to the earlier thinkers in your book, um, because that may, might be able to show like how he departed, what he built upon them, uh, how he built upon them, etc. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, alongside the critique of socialist monetary reforms, there's also a critique of essentially using the law in order to make the monetary system more just, more stable. I think that would have been, you know, a trope recognizable from Locke and from others that he essentially used the state and the tools of the law in order to reform this constitutional system called the monetary system. And you use law in order to make it function differently. Marx again thinks that this, you know, mischaracterizes what's actually going on here, that if money is a system like law, it's not at all obvious that the sovereign actually has the ability to mold it according to his interest, right? So there's a famous monetary reform that happens precisely during this time period in England, which has an effect on, you know, how much gold do banks have to hold? What is the money um, that's being circulating? And Marx's critique essentially to say that these attempts to eradicate monetary crises through a better law underestimate the role that capital plays, underestimate the way in which banks make decisions, the way in which money is created and by private hands outside of the control of the state. So against someone like Fichte, you know, who had insisted on the state stepping in and republicanizing this constitutional system, this law-like system of money, Marx points out that in many ways the state's hands will be tied or 
the consequences of its actions will be very different from what it intends them to be. So the the, the language that I uh, pick up on this, which I think um, puts this nicely, is you know Fichte has a whole discussion of essentially money speaking the language of the law. Like these are these are things that we can actually reform and mold according to our ideals. And language is the, the example here, the kind of malleability of language um, maps onto the malleability of law, maps onto the malleability of money. For Marx, money doesn't speak the language of the state. It doesn't speak the language of the kind of constitutional lawyer or the kind of Fichtean project of monetary sovereignty. Instead, he says money speaks the language of commodities. That's what's really going on. I need to understand the way in which money under capitalism is also a commodity. Very different from simply a system of constitutional law. And that puts really tight constraints, both on socialist emancipatory proposals for republicanizing money and for, you know, more liberal conservative attempts to essentially eradicate capitalist crises by simply tinkering with the monetary system, be it through legal reforms or be it through a superior central bank. Right? This is the age in which people like Badgett, you know, the kind of patron saint of central bank interventions are writing texts. It's like, yeah, the only thing that's wrong here is that we need to have an activist central bank. Right? Money, money isn't stable. We need central banks to step in when necessary. And when they do that, things will be fine. That's, that, that doesn't work for Marx. So I want to get what will work for Marx. want to get to what will work for Marx in, in a second. But I think it's a, I, I think we need to take a pause and just because the terminology that we're using is we're basically using terms that people use today to mean very different things when we're talking about the middle of the 19th century. So could you totally. maybe talk just for a second about what you mean by liberalism, what you mean by conservatism, and then just setting the stage on those two sides, and then we'll go into what Marx is doing, because Marx is basically charting a path different from both of those. Um, and then uh, if you could do that, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, I was just literally referring to the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, or basically the two parties in office in England during this time. So I was trying to be as, as literal as possible without projecting kind of any ideology onto them. Okay. But I, I do think in the light of our conversation, it's, it's not totally misleading to characterize both of these as having, you know, um, a certain lineage that can be traced back to Locke like different sides of, of Lockeanism, um, either a conservative one in the sense that it's there for the purpose of stabilization, of stabilizing a fragile regime, and the constant fear that, you know, if we touch this fragile system called society, you know, the, the abyss awaits us. And I think that's the kind of fundamental conservative impulse, certainly one that conservative, um, you know, conservative thinkers in England in Marxist uh, environment would have held in the middle of the 19th century. And a, a kind of attitude of uh, civilizational fear, you could, you could call it. And on the other hand, there are those who have um, what one might call a liberal attitude towards it, which is more reformist, which is maybe a little less, um, you know, afraid to act, but which shares a fundamental commitment to a kind of progressive, uh, technocratic fix to the system. That if only we, we deploy the right tools, if only we pass the right reformist legislative proposals, if only we have a central bank that would do certain things, everything will be fine. You know, the system is fine once we do this. That's, that's you know, comp compressed, but I think that's, a, that's not an unfair summary of the liberal position at this time. Yes. 
So where does Marx come in now? Because Marx, you know, is really someone who who very much uh, adopts a similar approach to what you do in this book, which is like money is political, you know, from from the beginning. It is absolutely political, is connected to power, whether it's the power of the state or in Marx's case, capitalists. Um, so where does he come in with his theory of money? Uh, and um, why is that important for understanding his general theory of politics? Yeah, Um that's indeed the starting point. But then very quickly, there's a crucial twist, which is tied to his entire account of what it means to live in kind of structures uh, defined by capital, which is that he says money is a social relation, but it's a social relation that, like many other social relations under capitalism, has become commodified. And that commodification isn't just simply a misleading appearance, something that we can kind of wish away or escape in one way or another. That's an objective fact of what it means to live under capitalism. Your social relations are objectified and commodified. And just as that's true concerning the relationship between, you know, two workers who might be embodied in a complex supply chain, but at different ends of the globe, not realizing that they are in fact cooperating. The same is true with regard to money. So that means that, you know, the kind of Fichtean or Proudhonist call to simply republicanize species, to simply overcome that commodification, rings hollow or is at the very least naive for Marx. You know, that can only be possible if you actually t- also touch the fundamental pillars of capitalism itself, not under capitalism. And so this is where we have to talk about alienation. Could you maybe just quickly describe – I feel like we're doing like a, pre- like a basic on Marx because you're yeah. – essentially describing the process of alienation. So could you just tell people what that is and then maybe just relate it to what you just said so people understand how this all fits together into his grand system? Yeah, with the only caveat that I think Marx himself is kind of uh, queasy about this term alienation. It's a term that's crucial for him early on in his first encounter with economics when he first describes the role of money. Alienation is the term that he's using. And it's a pun essentially in German, on what it means to sell something. It's a pun that goes back to Hegel already, but it goes, you know, it essentially captures the way in which in selling something, um, you are changed yourself. It's not just the object that changes hands, but you have been changed by that process. Um, and, you know, that that's a powerful way to capture what, what Marx is after. But at the same time, it comes with some theoretical baggage in the sense that it begs the question, what does it mean not to be alienated? Right? What does it mean to be a full human being? And I think Marx himself is kind of becomes critical of of that the the set of premises and assumptions that are baked into that claim. Fully luxurated auto, what is it? Fully luxurated automatic communism. That, that's that's what it is. And I think that's that that is a, a critique that I hear a lot from people. It's like there's no vision of the post capitalist society, and so it's interesting. I mean, to me, it's not a particularly strong that's, critique. I think that's a trap. Marx himself very consciously sets up for himself. I mean, I'm not sure trap is the right word, but it's a, it's an impasse that he theorizes for himself, namely that on the one hand you want to criticize capitalism, right? You want to point out and describe these effects that maybe we can call alienation. But at the same time, because of the kind of consistent historicist thinker he is, he has to prevent himself from outlining either kind of an anthropological constant, like this is real human nature, which we can recapture. No, that we're defined by change. We're defined by possibility. Anti-historical materialism at its very nature. (laughs) Exactly. But also 
by epistemological constraints on what could it possibly mean for us to imagine what that post-capitalist future would look like, right? That's the kind of proverbial, um, you know, peasant who's being asked to imagine what it might look like to live in late 20th century capitalism. It's a kind of nonsensical thought to exercise. And Marx is aware of this. And so how do you, how do you walk that line between, you know, performing the work that alienation performs for him early on while censoring yourself um, from saying things that your own system really can't support? Right. And especially from uh, operating, operating in that prophetic register, which is exactly. ironic because Marx really, I think, personally did not want to operate in that register. And it's yep. absolutely how he was received, unsurprisingly. Absolutely. Uh, there, that is, I think, is always a tension between Marx himself and sort of the reception of Marx. Marx Completely. Yeah, and yeah, I think and that's the major thing we've learned from a whole bunch of fantastic recent biographies like Marcello Musto's, like the way in which Marx was not the prophet, right. but just a, this curious mind beset by doubt and self-doubt and just fundamentally curiosity. Um, you know, that that's very different from the kind of 20th century prophet. Right. And very, I, I think personally very much the self-image of the scientist. I mean, he, he's such yes. a 19th century social scientist, yes. like more, more than anything in my mind. And, and this might just be because I study the history of the social sciences. That's what Marx thinks he's doing uh, by far. He's, he's using the, the new tools of modernity to analyze and to scientifically to, uh, uh, arrive at uh, uh, some form of fundamental human uh, emancipation. Um, and that's the stuff he's reading on his deathbed, yes. like in the last couple of years. These are the things he most loves to read, these new social scientists studies about i mean anything from the social life of the american beaver to you know the russian mirror or iroquois family structures that's the stuff that really obsesses him yeah that's what gets him that, that that's yeah. really what gets him and that, that that's why he's fundamentally you know the apotheosis in some sense of enlightenment thinking um mm-hmm. which is which is ironic that people accuse him of being anti-enlightenment mm-hmm. sometimes i think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the project um so let's but let's return to currency so what does marx say about literal currency because he's living also in a moment moment when, he, when he's in germany there are different currencies right correct me if i'm wrong but there are many different currencies floating around mm-hmm. this is true f- pun very much intended with floating uh th- this is true of europe in general this is true of you know other uh, of the united states so so what does he think about in this moment of defeat what what is the approach that he takes to currency itself so let me say two things about the kind of monetary background um, that might help us to understand what what he himself is doing and where he positions himself a, this is an age that's still before the formal emergence of the gold standard, right? So it's really only from the middle of the 1870s onwards that the gold standard becomes fully kind of solidified as, you know, the central pillar of the global economic system with Britain as its apex. Instead, it's a kind of system in transition where there are already countries on the gold standard, but more importantly than that, than that there are countries on a very complex bimetallic standard. So France, for example, most famously, is on a you know, bimetallic standard, which means a standard based on uh, both gold and silver with a certain exchange ratio between the two managed by the central bank. Right? So that's the, that's the first thing. It's the moment in which the gold standard is on the rise, but it's still a more complex world than simply the world of the gold standard. Secondly, and I think this, is, this has been, I think, really underestimated by, by many readers, it's a system of credit already. It's a system of global credit. It, it was fashionable at some point to read Marx, even by those who were very sympathetic to him, and kind of try to amend his thought, fix it, complement it by saying like, oh, what would Marx say about financialization? Or what would Marx say about credit? Because unfortunately, he wrote in this age of the gold standard, so we need to update him for a world that's defined by credit. I think that, that actually completely mischaracterizes what's happening in the mid-19th century, which is an explosion of credit, both domestic but in particular international credit, new forms of credit-issuing institutions 
both official banks, but even more so shadow banks are popping up everywhere. And the thing Marx loves to write about for um, the newspaper columns that he's commissioned to write for um, the, the paper he's writing for is exactly that kind of, you know, new world of credit. He's deeply, deeply immersed in it. He has whole series where he explains why understanding these, you know, French hedge funds is crucial for understanding the potential for European revolution. There's a separate question of why that is so far in the background and in the footnotes only of Capital, why you can read volume one of Capital and come away not realizing that Marx is deeply familiar with this world of credit. Right? That's a really fascinating question. In some way, it was one of the questions that set me on my journey. Um, and I can say more about that in a, in a moment. Um, but but it's important to just recover the fact that Marx was deeply familiar with this, that Marx thought about money in a world that is actually much more like ours than, than it is kind of far removed from us. So why don't we go into it? How did this set you on your on your quest? You're a millennial socialist. Is that fair? Or, or do you, do you fair, not want yeah. to identify yourself? No, that's fair. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. I think the generation before us, Stephen, they never wanted to identify like how left they were. But every one of us is like, I'm a Marxist Leninist. Uh, so, so you're a millennial socialist. You're interested in the in these politics. How did this set you down um, your journey to to do this book? I'd say what ten years ago, I'd imagine something like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of sources, but one of them, the one I just alluded to, really has to do with just reading Volume One of Capital. And one of the strange sensations that at least I had as I was shifting from Marxist journalism of the 1850s, from his, the writing that emerged most immediately from the crisis of 1857-58 that we talked about a moment ago, was that in those texts, you know, most famously the Grundrisse, but also the book that came out, The Contribution on the Critique of Political Economy, Marx is talking extensively about the history of monetary theory, about the political history of currencies, about many of the things that my book ends up being about, including several of the episodes, you know, not least Locke and Petty, but also in particular the Napoleonic Wars, Britain's experiments with fiat money, um, you know, the various monetary reforms. These are all central in the sense. When you turn to volume one of Capital, all that is, yeah, Marx himself says it explicitly in the preface. He says, now that I have this breakthrough to the concept of capital, all the historical material has either been removed completely or just moved into the footnotes. It's mostly gone. Right. And so for me, that was, that was kind of the impetus to just, you know, first understand that claim, the way in which it was stated. It's like, obviously that, that's all gone now, but also to follow the footnotes, um, to actually dig through these, um, these layers of the political history of money that you actually can still find if you do a little bit of work, if you actually go to the notes and don't just stay in the main body of the text. Um, and to connect that to Marx's own journey in the 1850s as a critic of Proudhon and someone who deeply, deeply studied um, modern credit systems. So where do we where do we go from there? Where does Marx find himself in the 1860s and the 1870s? Uh, what does he envision? What role? I mean, maybe just to frame it starkly, and then we could go from there. In the post-revolutionary society, what role would money play? Would there be money? I just oh, want to sorry. make it clear. I'm sorry, Stephen, but I want to make it clear. Having talked about millennial socialism, this is a third way podcast. <laughs> oh, strictly speaking, yeah, um, we are a we are a democratic leadership council, third way friendly podcast. <laughs> I just want to make that clear to everybody. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, I mean, that's. Uh, 
let's uh, let's take let's take a step back before we get to what will happen to money after social after capitalism because like that's then we was that that takes us back into the impasse that we referred to earlier right, right. like what could marx actually say about this <laughs> right but so so let's stay let's stay under capitalism first i think what marx is doing here is that he is to put it theoretically formalizing his account of capitalism and capital right that's where the famously difficult highly formal chapters of uh, volume one of capital come from that it can look like either you get an entirely a historical account or it's a kind of weird kind of genesis of where capital came from which i think you know uh would be uh in both incorrect instead it's a it's a very formal way of explaining what capital is and you know there are other parts of the book that are obviously much more historical um but marx formalizes and kind of you know, develops the theoretical component of his incipient analysis of capital. And politically, what that means is he's essentially radicalizing his critique of voluntarist credit reform and both voluntarist credit reform on the socialist left and voluntarist credit reform among those, you know, members of British Parliament and those, you know, well-thinking central bankers who think just with the right tweaks, with a superior mandate for the central bank or a better currency legislation, they can essentially stabilize capitalism. Marx wants to criticize both of these positions in a highly formal way. And he kind of gets increasingly committed to polemicizing against um, these, these attempts to reform or stabilize um, money, money alone. So, hold on, Jake, cut this. Stephen, where do you think we should go from here? Well, we can speculate a little bit about what would happen to money after capitalism. Yeah, and then um, we could, uh, capital doesn't say much about that. <laughs> right. So, is there anything that you would want to? Is there anything that we haven't covered? Because I feel like this was complex. Yeah. We could probably start wrapping up here. But like, what else do you think we should cover? With um... I mean, let's 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 speculate a little bit. Not not so much because I have an answer to this, but I think it's a really great question okay. to ask. You know, what would happen to money after capitalism? Right. Like, I think. Let me let me say let me say a word about that. Um, okay, so how about I ask this? I, I'm going to yeah. ask like if Marx was an advisor to a German prince, what would he have told him? And then we could start speculating because I think that's also interesting. Like kind of where the rubber hits the road. And obviously these are speculations, but they're interesting ones. Does that sound good? Yeah, it's funny, but <laughs> yeah, let's do it. it. It's funny to think about, but you know, let's put it in our own register. All right, three, two. One. So, Stephen, let's say Marx, it's difficult to imagine, but let's say it's, you know, 1870. Marx has been called to be, you know, some form of economic advisor to some German prince. Um, what is he telling that prince? Well, it's not just difficult to imagine. I think it's impossible to imagine. You know? <laughs> Marx would be the first to kind of demolish the very possibility of anyone giving advice to that German prince. But like to to adapt it a little bit, like what you know, what would uh, what would Marx uh, recommend to the members of the Paris Commune? You know, what kind of money should be used in the Paris Commune? Um, and I think that there are two ways to get into this. One is like what's actually immediately happening in the moment of you know struggle, which you kind of still defined by capital or at least leftovers of capitalism um, and, you know, maybe with one foot beginning to kind of step outside it. Right? And then there's a larger, much more speculative question about what would the role of money be in a post-capitalist society? Now, we know more, I think, about the former than about the latter, because there actually are, um, there's a correspondence between Marx and Engels from the 1850s, in which the two of them talk a little bit about what the role could be of monetary management in, in the kind of period of transition. And so interestingly, what, what, um, they arrive at is the idea that 
you know, they reject the idea that credit reform will somehow pave the way towards revolution. They reject the idea that, you know, a people's central bank would somehow end exploitation. But they say, and I think this is an idea that initially comes from Engels and Marx affirms it, in an initial kind of first post-capitalist government, it will be crucial to centralize investment. And it will be necessary to have something like a nationalized central bank doing this. It would also be crucial to control the level of interest, not least to bring it down to zero eventually, an idea that actually, you know, Keynes in some way picks up in, in the general theory. But so there, there is room for a central bank that has nationalized investment and can control interest in this period of transition. Okay. And one could conclude from that, there's clearly money in that system. Now, when it comes to what would the role of money be after capitalism, I'm actually not 100% sure. Well, I have some ideas, but I think the more important thing is to ask that question. I think it's a really, really important, helpful question to understand what Marx is doing. Because on one reading, it can look like, you know, and that sounds peculiar, there isn't money anymore. Or the thing that would be circulating as well wouldn't be called money, properly speaking. Right? Or at least it would be so fundamentally different that it would be, you know, difficult to recognize it as money. So this is no longer a debate about how should money be changed? You know, what kind of money should there be? But should there be money? Will there be money after capitalism? You know, that's how Marx radicalizes um, this entire conversation. Stephen, I think um, as we sit here in, in 2022 under the um, most leftist uh, American president of, of all time, or at least since uh, FDR, uh, obviously, um, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that. But uh, I wonder if uh, you could sort of, you know, I mean, we're going to continue the series past Marx, uh, but I'm, I wonder if we could look at how Marx's analysis of these issues, in, in your view, kind of uh, looks in in hindsight, in retrospect, mm -hmm. having you know, uh, you know, based on what has happened in the intervening. Uh, you know, hundred and what is it now? Fifty years. Mm -hmm. um, you know how? How? What would you say? You know, he got right, and you know, maybe uh, didn't foresee, and and you know, kind of give people a. a, a I, I don't mean grade marks, obviously, but uh, uh, a plus. You know, just just kind of yeah, a plus, absolutely. I mean, the first uh, thing I learned. Give yeah, that's a, a great question. Yeah. The first thing I learned is that many of the kind of tropes out there, characterizations, even by specialists about what Marx says about money actually turn out to be a little bit misleading, right? There's a trope out there that Marx is something like a, you know, a metalist or a commodity theorist. And that actually really fails to capture the complexity of his position, where the point isn't so much that money is a commodity, but that commodities have a money-like quality. That's very different. Anyway, so, so part of, part of, my close reading of Marx is to actually capture the complexity of Marx's position that doesn't fit neatly into any of the existing camps between kind of orthodox and heterodox theories of credit, between, you know, defenders of metal money versus fiat money. It really is challenging us to think in richer, more complex terms about these camps, right? To break out of these binaries and, and instead appreciate well, first of all, the complexity of his thought, but actually the way in which money doesn't fit neatly into these categories, right? So that's, that's first a really salutary reminder, both um, for the historiography, but also for us to think about money. There's a second element to this, which has to do with the fact that once you begin to kind of misread Marx on money, and once you take at face value 
the removal of the politics of money from the main body of capital, it can look like there's nothing more to be said about this, right? Like, there's a there's an interesting theoretical question of whether there will be money after capitalism. But apart from that, we can just stop talking about money. Now, I think that would actually be a mistaken reading of what Marx himself was up to, because he followed this obsessively. He thought these monetary political debates mattered crucially, even as he disagreed with the kind of Proudhonist wholesale vision. He thought this is a this is a really important dimension of of politics in his time. So for me, the way in which he still speaks to us is not by giving us, you know, a different um, a different theory of money that we can kind of accept or reject, but instead by indicating to us that as much as we might be excited by the Fichtean project of monetary sovereignty, that as much as we might, you know, call for a Proudhonist Republican credit reform that would you know, basically make credit more democratically accessible, there are severe limits to the kind of political transformation that is possible by monetary reform alone. Instead, monetary reform would have to be part and parcel of a broader economic transformation. And I think that's, that's the reminder that, you know, continues to be as relevant today, as long as we don't let it run out of control and become a justification of why we should take our eyes off the politics of money completely. Right? So he forces us to inhabit this kind of uncomfortable space whereby we kind of maybe have to let go of some of the more voluntarist vision in which monetary reform on its own will fix all of our problems. And at the same time, that doesn't remove, obviously, the significance of the politics of money, certainly not under capitalism, where money is here to stay. It depends what kind of money will be there. American prestige coin will be the only currency going forward after today. Stephen Eich, Assistant Professor of Government at Georgetown University and author of The Currency of Politics, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, guys.